0: Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you've given us another day where we can come together and sit under your word and that your word is what gives us our hope. Your word is what gives us our peace. And your word is the only source that gives us assurance of your amazing and unending love for us. Oh God, we pray now that you would prepare our hearts and ready our minds to receive this message. Lord, no matter where we're at, no matter what we are struggling through, no matter what our circumstances may be, we pray Jesus that you will meet us, and Holy Spirit, you would apply this word to all of us, in all of your powerful ways, making it relevant to us. Oh God, would you now bless this message, in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, Amen, and Amen. You know, as a father of five, I feel like my life is in a endless time loop right i basically feel like i'm living the same day over and over again to where i'm stuck for example as soon as one child graduates out of diapers i still have another child that's still in diapers as soon as one child no longer needs me to bathe them i still have another child i still need to bathe as soon as one child gets sick of that grotesque song let it go another child peaks with demands Elsa! Elsa! Let it go! Again! 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 Yeah, my life is basically Groundhog Day in real life. I've been living the same day for basically 10 years. And one particular activity I have been doing over and over and over and over again is reading children's stories. You know the kind. Jack and Jill went up the hill. The old lady who lived in the shoe Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. These stories are always in the forefront of my mind in all of my daily activities. And funny thing is, I was preparing this message, and one particular children's story kept cropping into my consciousness. It's the story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. You remember that one? It's the story of that young, pernicious, blonde girl who wanders off into the woods, stumbles to the home of the three bears, you know, Papa Bear, Mama Bear, Baby Bear. And as she intrudes and trespasses, she ends up eating all their food and sleeping in all their beds. And do you remember the process in which Goldilocks did all those things? She first goes to Papa Bear's porch, and ooh, it's too hot. And then she moves on to Mama Bear's porridge, but ooh, that's too cold. But then she gets to Baby Bear's porridge, and ah, it's just right. In fact, it's so right that she eats the whole thing, gets food coma, and what does she now need to do? She needs to close her eyes for a bit. And then she ventures off into Papa Bear's bed, and, oh, that's too hard. And then to Mama Bear's bed is, ooh, too soft. But then again, Baby Bear's bed. Ah, it's just right. And she falls asleep. That's the process of Goldilocks. And you're probably thinking to yourself, Pastor, what does this have to do with the sermon of today? Well, I'll tell you, it has a lot to do with it because it serves as a perfect illustration of the process that all Christians go through as they try to engage and understand God's law. You see, there are basically two ways in which Christians can misunderstand God's law that are very unfitting because it's just not right. But there is a third way, a third way of understanding God's law that is perfect because it is just right. And that's what I want to talk to you guys about today. And if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, I want you to particularly pay attention because this is perhaps one of the most crucial understandings that you must have if you want to be a genuine follower of Jesus. You must have a proper understanding of the law. And so, to do that, I'm going to talk to you guys about three things in today's sermon. Three points for today. First, we're going to talk about the first misunderstanding of the law. Then we're going to talk about the second misunderstanding of the law. And then we're going to end it with the proper understanding of the law. The first misunderstanding of the law, the second misunderstanding of the law, and then finally, the proper understanding of the law. Let's begin with the first point, the first misunderstanding of the law okay so this is a very very complicated and dense passage and because that is so we're going to be jumping around here and there throughout the verses so that we can try and create a very clear and concise understanding of what paul is saying and so we begin at verse 19 as our starting point read it again with me to what paul says there in verse 19 where he writes the following why then the law It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary." Hmm. So you'll notice that verse 19 begins with a question, right? Why then the law? It's a question that the people that Paul was writing to was asking, and if we could put it in our modern parlance, it's basically asking, Paul, why did God give us His law? Why did God give His people? his holy law. Now, depending on who you ask, you'll probably get differing answers. In fact, if you ask the same person at different moments of their timeline of living, they'll give you different answers. For example, if you ask a middle-aged man who is a father of many girls, he'll probably give a different answer as to why he gave us the law, right? But if you asked him when he was a young rebellious teenager with no responsibilities, he'll probably give you a very different answer. But here, The Apostle Paul, throughout his Christian life, from the very moments that he was a follower of Jesus to the very end of his life on earth, his answer was always the same. And you know what the answer was? He said it right here in our verse. Because of transgressions. According to the Apostle Paul, the reason why God gave us His holy law is because of transgression, or to put it more simply, because of sins. That is why God gave us His law, because of sin. Now you hear that and you're probably thinking, Pastor, that's not very clear. Can you further explain what he means by that? Well, let me see if I can help you here. Basically, you and I live in a world filled with sinners. And when I say sinners, I'm including you and I'm including myself. And because sinners by definition do disgusting and destructive things, God gave us his law to minimize these disgusting destruction by managing people to be restrained by the law. In other words, God gave us his law so that it could provide for us a long and prosperous life. God gave us his law so that we sinners could have a long and prosperous life. Consider what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 24. Take a listen. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the lord our god so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today you see the bible teaches and life confirms that when a person lives in accordance to the law specifically god's law life gets prolonged life becomes prosperous because you minimize and manage the disgusting and destructive effects of sin from washing over you or spilling over To your loved ones. Now, for those of you who were carefully reading this passage as it was read a moment ago by Pastor Charles, you might necessarily agree with my interpretation here because of what Paul says in verses 21 to 22. Let's read again what Paul says there. He writes, quote, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, Paul is not very clear with what he's saying here, but one thing that we can clearly pick up is this idea of what he says about the law. And what does he say in those verses? He says that the law cannot give life. That's right. The law cannot give life. So you hear that and you're wondering, well, which is it, Pastor John? Can the law give life or can the law not give life? You know what the answer is? Yes. That's the answer. Can the law give life? Yes. Can the law not give life? Yes. Are you confused? Well, let me explain. See, the Bible teaches us that God's law can give us a long earthly life. And when I say can, I mean could, like could possibly. The law of God could possibly give us a long earthly life. But the Bible also says that the law cannot give us a lovely eternal life. So let me say that all again together. The law of God could possibly give us a long earthly life, but the law of God cannot, absolutely cannot give us a lovely eternal life. That is such a crucial distinction that as followers of Jesus, you must understand, okay? God's law can restrain sin, but God's law cannot redeem sin. God's law, okay, can control the sinful nature, but it cannot change the sinful nature. This is such a crucial distinction that Christians must understand, right? But sadly, too many Christians don't. And so they walk around with the make with the mistaken assumption that the law of God can redeem them from their sins, that the law of God can change their sinful nature. All they need to do is simply obey it. But brothers and sisters, there's nothing simple about that whatsoever. If you fool yourself into thinking that the law of God could give you a lovely eternal life, then you have fallen into the first misunderstanding of the law. And notice how I said fool yourself because here's the thing many Christians will fall under the mistake of this misunderstanding of the law and yet not even realize that they've done it. And because Paul understands how easy it is to get so self-deceived this way he gives us a litmus test that we can conduct on ourselves for us to figure out whether or not we really have fallen under this first misunderstanding and that litmus test is recorded for us in verse 28 of our passage read again to what paul says there he says this there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free there is no male and female for you are all one in christ jesus here paul is making a comparable list of various groups okay? You have Greeks versus Jews. You have free versus slave. You have male versus female. And here's the thing. The commonality of all of these various groups is that you always have one party who sees themselves as more superior to their counterparts. You have the Greeks who see themselves as superior to the Jews. You have the free men who see themselves as superior to the slaves. And you see males who see themselves as superior to females. See, Paul is highlighting for us this reality that we call the superiority complex, right? The superiority complex. And why is Paul making this something that we need to be aware of? Because he's telling us what happens as a result when we have this first misunderstanding of God's law. We think we are fundamentally better than the people around us. If you're one of those Christians who think, That you should be perceived by other people as being more respectable, of being of greater repute, of being someone who should be raved about in comparison to those people, whoever those people are, Paul would say, you have fallen victim to this first misunderstanding of God's law. And here's the thing, the longer you think this way, the more you will start saying very ridiculous things that is not in accordance to the Bible. Things like, you know what? I think I should be allowed into heaven when I die. You know, if I drop that at this very moment and I f- stand in front of the pearly gates and St. Peter says, you know, should you be led into heaven? I think yeah. Because after all, I think I lived a pretty good life in comparison to other people. You know, I was faithful to my wife. I raised my kids well, unlike those people over there. You know, I cared for my elderly parents. I gave money to the poor. Unlike those people over there, I worked hard. I didn't cheat the system. I didn't cheat my taxes. Unlike those people over there. So yeah, if I died right here, right now, I think I would go to heaven. You ever thought that way before? The answer is, of course you have. We all have. Well, sometimes we still do. And do you realize what you have done? You've essentially justified yourself at the expense of somebody else. In other words, you relied on seeing people beneath you so you could see yourself as someone who stands out as being worthy of eternal life. And whether you realize it or not, that translates into you becoming the kind of person who will have no genuine desire, who have no genuine compulsion to help people who are less fortunate than you, because it's in your vested interest that those people are not as well respected, of well repute, or as raved about as you are. Right? Because the moment they rise up and reach your level of respectability, your level of great reputation, your level. being raved about you no longer will feel like you can stand out you're going to feel threatened and you're going to have a vested interest of keeping such people down directly or even indirectly do you think it's any coincidence that the dynamic of the groups of people paul lists here is a dynamic of dominance right do you think the greeks dominated the jews oh yes they did do you think free people dominated over slaves of course do you think males dominated over females? Do I need to even ask such a question? Of course. Okay. This is what happens when you fall into this first misunderstanding of God's law where you don't make the crucial distinction of what God's law could possibly do and what it absolutely cannot do. The law of God could possibly give you a long, prosperous life, but it absolutely cannot give you a lovely, peaceful, eternal And notice how I keep harping on this idea of could possibly, right? Could possibly give you a long, prosperous life. Why do I keep making that emphasis? Well, to explain, let me go to my next point, the second misunderstanding of the law. Let's skip down to the middle of our passage, down to verse 23 all the way down to verse 26. Follow along as I read it. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Pause right there. Your attention, please. Paul tells us in this verse, in these set of verses, of another misunderstanding of God's law that is just as common as the first. And just like in the story of Goldilocks, where the second porridge, you know, the cold one, was the complete opposite of the first bowl of porridge of daddy, which was the piping hot one, so also this second misunderstanding of God's law is the complete opposite of the first misunderstanding of God's law. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 23, Paul tells us that the law of God is able to what? It's able to hold us captive. It's able to imprison us until the coming of faith. And then in the next verse, he tells us how the law is able to do this or why the law is able to do this. Excuse me. Because it is our guardian. He says the law of God serves as our guardian. Now, what in the world does he mean by that? Well, consider this explanation from theologian John Stott. I think he gives a perfect, clear understanding. Listen to what he says here. Quote, The Greek word for guardian means literally a tutor. He was usually himself a slave whose duty it was to conduct the boy or youth to and from school. He was not the boy's teacher so much as his disciplinarian. He was often harsh to the point of cruelty and is usually depicted in ancient drawings with a rod or cane in his hand. In what sense is the law like a child's disciplinarian or tutor? The law expresses the will of God for His people, tells us what to do and what not to do, and warns us of the penalties of disobedience. Since we have all disobeyed, we have fallen under its just condemnation. Nothing we do can deliver us from its cruel tyranny. Like a jailer, it has thrown us into prison. It rebukes us and punishes us from our misdeeds." End quote. What's he saying? He's saying that God's law right, can create an oppressive cruel, tyrannical oppression over us, comparable to how children are getting abused or even how prisoners get tortured by their prisoners. That's what Paul says the law of God does to us, okay? Consider this heartfelt prayer from the psalm, Psalm 32, as a man confesses his sins before God. He says this, quote, When I refused to confess my my sins, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Here is a man who's basically suffering from the law of God as Paul is describing it here in our passage. The law of God was this cruel, tyrannical, abusive, oppressive weight upon his life that caused psychological and even physical trauma. Now if you're here watching today investigating Christianity, right? this might not give you a very positive portrayal of the Christian God. Because after all, if our God is the one who created this law, And it's this very law that's created this kind of cruel, oppressive, burdensome, torturous experience. Then you may be tempted to think, well, that must be a reflection of how the Christian God is. Maybe the Christian God is cruel. Maybe he is tyrannical. Maybe he's brutal. Maybe he is wicked and evil. Because that's the only way to explain it, right? Well, not necessarily. Let me see if I can use this illustration uh, to show you another alternative. Imagine for a moment, a drunk man is trying to drive home. After a night of partying up with his guys, right, getting smashed, he decides to just drive his car back home. But instead of driving his car home, he drives his car into a light pole. Okay. Now, assuming that this man survives this accident, could he ever justifiably and consciously accuse the creator of the car for being responsible for the oppressive, crushing burden the car had on him in the accident? No, of course not. Who does that man have to blame himself the drunk driver and why is he to blame because he refused to recognize he did not acknowledge that he was in no condition to utilize the vehicle and that's precisely paul's point here the cruelty of the law the oppression oppressiveness of the law is the direct result of a person not recognizing their true condition as they try to use the law. In other words, a person misunderstands the law when they fail to recognize they are in no condition to actually try to follow the law. All right? This is the second misunderstanding of the law. It's a misunderstanding that assumes that because the law of God could possibly give someone a long, prosperous, earthly life, that it will always give someone a long, prosperous, earthly life. And that's simply not true absolutely not true and the reason why it's not true is because you and I and every human being that walks on this earth we are impaired in a way that's comparable to the drunk being impaired by alcohol you and I are morally impaired by sin okay you see it is possible for a drunk driver to successfully drive his car home drive his car home right I've known people who have done that for years and by some miracle they're not dead yet And it is possible for people with certain kinds of personality types coming up from certain strict moral upbringing, certain religious traditions, that yes, they can have a prolonged period of prosperity because they quote unquote, follow the law. But just like at one point the drunk will eventually face the crushing burden of the car, so also will every human being at some point be crushed by the law, right? Isn't that so sad? Isn't that sad? Because it turns out that the law of God not only cannot give us a lovely, peaceful, eternal life, but it's not even reliable in giving us a long, prosperous, earthly life. But do you know what makes it even more sadder? Just like with the first misunderstanding, many Christians don't realize that they also have this other second misunderstanding. So again, Paul gives us another test that we can conduct on ourselves to see whether or not we have this second misunderstanding and it goes back to that very same verse verse 28 let's read it again there is neither Jew nor Greek there's neither slave nor free there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus as I said earlier this is a list of various groups of people and remember how I said one party within a group saw themselves as superior which by default means the other group saw themselves as what inferior Right? I'm talking about the Jew. I'm talking about the slave. I'm talking about the females. These were the people who felt inferior in comparison to their counterparts. So here in verse 28 we see Paul is giving a list of people who suffer from superiority complexes as well as inferiority complexes respectively. Okay? And by coming to awareness of that Paul is telling us what happens when you have this second misunderstanding of the law. And that is, you will suffer an inferiority complex. And if you think about it, it makes so much sense. Because what is the fundamental problem? What is the fundamental issue of a person who struggles with an inferiority complex? You might be tempted to think, oh, they're filled with self-hatred, self-loathing, self-rejection. Yeah, they could be, but that's not the fundamental cause. That's one of the byproducts of the fundamental cause, but it's not the fundamental cause. Do you know what the fundamental cause is of a person with an inferiority complex? It's stubborn denial. Stubborn denial. When I was in middle school, uh, I had a classmate who quite honestly was the most annoying person that I met at that point in my life. And the reason why she was so annoying because, is because um, every time we got back our exams, our greeted exams, she would cry out the same complaint and diatribe, right? You see, this young lady thought that she was an A-plus student but her grades constantly told her that she was a C plus student. And so this young lady would get back the testing. She would cry out, I don't get it. How come I didn't get an A? I studied so hard. I should have gotten an A. John, what did you get? You got an a. How can you get an A and not me? I worked so hard. She kept doing this like clockwork every time we got back our exams. Till at one point, a classmate of ours got so frustrated, turned around and said to her, look, there's nothing wrong with your test results. They're accurate. You're the one that's not accurate. You are a C plus student. Accept it. Deal with it and shut up. <laughs> that's what she said. Well, this young lady, after that intense uh, confrontation, stopped complaining about not getting an A on her exam. Right? But she kept complaining nevertheless. And you know what her complaint was afterwards? It started changing into, I'm such an idiot. I'm such a fool, I'm such a moron, I'll never get into a good school. Ah! Right? Now, I guess on the surface level, you could interpret that change in, in uh, complaint as at least an improvement of where she was at before. At least she finally accepted she's not an A-plus student. But you know what, I would beg to differ. I'd like to challenge that interpretation. Is it really that she accepted who she really is? that she's a C plus student because I don't know about you, if I was a C plus student and I got back the test results saying that I got a C plus I would probably say okay I am what I am and I got what I got right and yet here's this young lady who got what she got as a reflection of who she really is and she starts self-flagellating herself with insults condemning herself punishing herself right a person only gets punished If there's an assumption that person could have done better, right? That's why they're getting punished. And the fact that she punishes herself with such self-cruelty makes you wonder, did she really accept that her true condition is what it is? Or was she punishing herself because there was still a stubborn refusal, a stubborn denial to accept her true condition? You know, sometimes I meet Christians who constantly say, Oh, I'm such a wicked sinner. Oh, I'm, such a, I'm such a depraved person. I'm such a wicked man or a wicked person. And some people might interpret that and in saying, Wow, look how humble he is. Look how humble she is. She's being so honest. She's, she's confessing and she's really being that way. Well, it could be. Or it could be she's just a Christian version of Shelby, the girl in my class. Right? She could just be or he could just be someone who's not willing to accept they really are a sinner by the way they're self-condemning and self-hating themselves. You ever met a Christian like that? Sure you have. And you know the effect that they have around people, around other Christians specifically? They're like vampires, just sucking all the positive energy out of the room and just vomiting back out, nothing but negative, discouraging energy That just makes it so hard to live with the kind of hope and joy that we, the church, are called to live. That is what happens when you have this second misunderstanding of God's law. So there you have it. Two common misunderstandings of God's law that results in two very toxic, very poisonous outcomes. Superiority complex, inferiority complex, all because there's an improper understanding of the law of God. So here's the question how do we as followers of jesus make sure that we have a proper understanding of the law so that we don't turn out into either the wicked superior you know arrogant pompous person or the life-sucking vampire you know self-flagellating person right? because they're so insecure well, that leads me to the final point, the proper understanding of the law. Let's circle back to our passage and read again verses 23 to 26, where again, Paul writes the following. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under law, in prison until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Here. Paul makes clear how we are to understand the law of God and it all centers on Jesus Christ, specifically faith in Jesus Christ. But of course, that begs the question, what exactly about Jesus are we to put our faith in? Well, Paul is going to show us in just a moment two specific things. First, we need to have faith in Jesus that He can do what the law of God could not. And secondly, we need to have faith in Jesus that what He says about us carries more truth more weight more authority than what we say about ourselves so let's quickly go through it first jesus can do for us what god's law cannot do okay what did i say earlier that the law of god cannot do the law cannot give us a lovely eternal life okay and why can the law of god not do that because first of all the law of god cannot redeem us from our sins okay the law of god cannot change our sinful nature But the Gospel tells us that's exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. When He died on the cross for us, He both redeemed us from our sins and He changed our sinful nature. Consider these two passages of Paul in Ephesians 1 and 2 Corinthians 5. Follow along. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. By dying on the cross and shedding His blood, Jesus made a ransom. He did the payment. He redeemed us from our sins, okay? And not only did He do that, but by the shedding of His blood, and then later on, His resurrection from the dead, it authorized Him to give us the Holy Spirit to live in us, to change us from the inside out, so that now we are capable by the power of the Spirit, to do what we could not be before. We can get out of our drunken state, but instead be filled with the Spirit so that we can now live a life of obedience, genuine obedience. But that's not all, okay? Because by doing all these things for us, Jesus is also telling us something about you that carries more authority, more truth than ever what you say about yourself. And you know what that is? The Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 4. Listen again to what he says. He writes, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus' death on the cross is God's loudest proclamation that says, You are forgivable. You are able to be accepted. And you are deeply loved. And the reason why Jesus' cross is more authoritative than whatever inner cross-examination that we put on ourselves that says, Oh, I'm so stupid. Oh, I'm so wicked. is because Jesus did what you were never willing to do for yourself. Jesus truly accepted your real condition. Okay? He accepted your true condition, evidenced by the fact that he was even willing to suffer for the consequences of your true condition. You see, I am convinced that one of the reasons why people with inferiority complexes are not willing to face their true condition and just self-flagellate, is because it's easier to self-condemn yourself than to face the actual punishment you deserve for that true condition you're in denying, in denial of. But Jesus tells you by his death on the cross, hey look, you can truly accept your real condition because I suffered the full punishment of it. So stop flagellating yourself anyway because it's so insufficient anyway if you try to pay for your condition. But I sufficiently paid for it. So stop bivying in denial. Accept who you are and finally put your faith in me. That's what the gospel teaches. Do you get that? So, putting all this together with everything that has been said, here's the question. How do we properly understand the law of God? Here's how you do it. The proper understanding of God's law begins with you waking up from your own self-delusion that you could earn eternal life on your own through the law of God. Or that you could acquire a long, prosperous earthly life through your obedience to the law. No. Both of those things can only happen and exclusively happens only through Jesus' work on the cross. Because it's Jesus' work on the cross that gives eternal life. It's Jesus' work on the cross that gives you the power to live a prosperous, prolonged, earthly life. That is what the Gospel teaches. And it all stems from that proper understanding. Do you get that? I hope you do. Because if you don't, what awaits you is either going to be the superiority complex or the inferiority complex or both, depending on what your mood is at a certain time of day. But in either situation, you're not going to be a blessing to the world. You're not going to be a source of encouragement. You're going to be a curse and a constant source of discouragement. And I've got to tell you, during this time that we're in right now, that is not what the world needs from the church. What the world needs from you, Christian, is that you have a proper understanding of the law by having a clear understanding and faith in who Jesus is and what he has done for you. I hope and pray that you will grasp that. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to really take heed to this message. Whether we've been walking with you for all of our lives or whether within the past year. God, I ask that you would help us to truly learn to follow you faithfully and let it begin with us having a proper understanding of your law. Lord, your law is holy. Your law is beautiful. And it is sweet. As sweet as honey from a comb as the Word of God teaches us. And yet, we've allowed it to become such a bitter source of our misery on earth, robbing us of any hope of eternal life. And God, we pray that that would be changed permanently by our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Help us now so that we can truly live out our calling of being a blessing to the world. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen and Amen.